so our teaching text today comes from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, and this is what we read. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. So I understand that this is not the typical Christmas passage. Um, this is perhaps not the passage that when you come, even in the Advent season, that you want. Uh, and and more, more honestly, this passage kind of strikes like a good plot for a drama. There's a fire. There's threats. There's a whole sort of scene of curious people going. And, and altogether, it's just not the warm fuzzies that I've learned to expect during the season uh, that I have once have called Christmas, but I'm learning to embrace is the Advent season season. And so a set of questions come to my mind, and I just want to submit these questions to you. Like, why does the wisdom of the church, who has for thousands of years, um, well, hundreds of years especially, um, why has the wisdom of the church handed us this passage today? We just received this gospel text from the liturgical calendar. We're in year A, and so why does this gospel text come to us? Like, why do we meet adult John the Baptist announcing information about adult Jesus, who, by the way, has the power to judge and to heal? Why is this strange and strained passage in front of us on this, the second Sunday of Advent? And so uh, that's what we're going to explore and to do so, we're just going to work our way through the text bit by bit, line by line, to see why it is that this has come to us on this, the second Sunday of Advent. And so if you will, if you have Bibles, you can flip or tap your way on over to the gospel according to Matthew, what we just read. Matthew chapter 3, picking up in verse 1, we just read these first few words. And they're this, in those days... Verse 1 of chapter 3, it starts out with this loaded line, in those days. 
And these are the type of words that like an, an uncle, you know, the eccentric uncle and or aunt uh, or grandparent would say around a family meal where they would go, oh, do you remember those good old days? They're talking about gas prices maybe, the good old days when I remember. It, that's the type of statement here. It's the looking back in my time, the good old days, in those days. And Matthew, like that kind of wacky uncle, is expecting that we know this part of the story. Matthew's queuing up this story about Israel's collective past, and he assumes that we know the story, but so often we, we don't know the story. And there ought not be like these feelings of guilt that come up or shame, like, oh, I, didn't, I wasn't prepared for this moment in church today. I didn't know the story. No. It, instead, it's, it's, I think because of how we think about history, history is kind of a quirky thing. And I was, I was uh, struggling of how do I get this, um, get the tension of history in just a, f- a few moments to us. And this is, this is an illustration. It too is wonky, but just go here with me. It's kind of like walking into the grocery store history is. It's like walking into the grocery store and going over to the meat counter. And when you go to the meat counter, let's say that you have planned, I don't know, some hamburger helper for dinner. And you're saying, okay, I'm going to get some ground chuck. And what you do is you, it's like going to the meat counter, getting your ground chuck and saying, a cow. Now, is that a cow? This is not a rhetorical question. Is the ground chuck a cow? So it's mixed. It's like, okay, no, it's part of a cow. Which parts of the cow? I don't think we want to know. Um, Hopefully, it's something edible. Uh, Generally, it is. But what is it? It's part of it, but not the whole thing. And I think that that is, at least it was helpful to me that, um, yes, this is part of the cow. It's just not the whole thing. History is kind of like ground chuck. It's bloody. It's partial. And most of the time, especially in the time and place we live in, it comes to us in the sanitized packaging for consumption. History is something that, in other words, happened back then, over there, away from me. And as it comes to me, it comes in ways that I can handle it. But memories, on the other hand, sometimes memories come and they stir up a whole set of emotions in us. Memories come and they live in our bodies. Memories are a part of our story. Those days are not just about historical events back then in the first century at the Jordan River. Those days are about the memories, memories stored up in the stories of the people of Israel, a story that we are invited to embrace in Christ. Those days, they were pregnant with this prophetic expectation because those days, the people of Israel lived in the land that was promised to their forefathers, and yet they didn't quite live with the land They were there, but not fully in the way they anticipated because there was Roman military oppressors who were like, they were farming the land for them, sending their crops away. They were there, but not quite there. Those were the days when the people of Israel were waiting. They were longing for God to speak as he had some 400 years ago. And they were kind of going through the motions, hopeful that their religious devotion or other aspects of their life would bring Yahweh's grace to bear on their lives. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching. And he came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And that's just verse 1. See, John reveals that a new act in the play, this new scene in the story is birthed 
into reality. And many of us, we, we know the contours of John's life because many of us, we have a, a backdrop of churchianity. We, we've seen the stories, perhaps we've read them. I don't know, maybe you've watched some recent series on TV. And so you know, okay, John, he's this man of an unlikely birth to an aging mother. John is the son of a reluctant priest. He's also a bit of an odd fellow. He's living outdoors. He's eating bugs, and he's wearing some weird clothes. Okay, so this is John, but don't miss what Matthew is trying to do by inviting us into this memory, into this part of the story. And I'm not, this is not to insult our intelligence. This is to help us map this out together. So I'm going to ask some questions. They're not rhetorical. Where was John? Think about verse one. Where was John? Kate, maybe hit me with the answer. In the wilderness. So that's where John was. Now, uh, what was John doing in the wilderness? John was, pre- little, you, could, you can be, it's right there. John was preaching in the wilderness. And what was John preaching? For that, we need to search down to verse two. So go with me there. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So what might that all mean? If John is in the wilderness, he's preaching there, and the message that he's preaching is turn, change your mind about the way God works in the world because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Well, in order to see that, we, like Matthew gives us the next reason in verse 3, if you just progress right in, this is what we hear. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for Yahweh or prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. See, smack dab in the middle of those days, a new thing emerged. Who is John? But this new thing is actually an old thing that people were hopeful for. And the New Testament scholar, Ben Witherington, he riffs on this and he makes this interesting observation about this moment, about John the baptizer. And he says, essentially, you can punctuate John's life with this word from Isaiah. You can punctuate John's life, as we just read it, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, comma, prepare, or we could read it like this. You could punctuate John's life like this, a voice of one calling or crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh, make straight paths for him. And you may be thinking, what does a comma have to do with it? Like, what does this matter? Well, the former emphasizes John's preparation, but the latter emphasizes the location and the former John emphasize, or the former emphasizes John's preparation for God's coming with the wilderness is like an extra in the story. The wilderness is just a thing in the backdrop, but in the latter, John's location is the destination where Yahweh is doing the new thing. I, I hope you get this because I'm going to labor this point for us. Something new is happening in the desolate place. The wilderness, it emerges as more than just a backdrop for the story, but a character in the story. See, if the call of the first Sunday of Advent, which is what we sat in this past Sunday, is to keep watch, it's to to be ready, it's to, in some sense, stand in the security of God's presence, this, like, what seems like the dim light, and yet trust that that light will give us the capacity to move forward. If that is the call on the first Sunday, to allow his light to be our grace, what if the second Sunday of Advent is here to build something new in the desolate place? 
we strain for the illustration because the room that we're in, but if the lights were off, use your imagination, and just one of these candles were lit, we would strain to see any way forward. It would just be, however, the, however far that light could cast its brilliance would be the way that we, we would go. Then we would have to move it forward. But all of a sudden, there's another light that comes. So it's even a little forward, but what it's doing is it's pushing against the darkness. But where is the light coming? The light is coming in the darkness. The light is there in the desolate place. What if the second Sunday of Advent is here to build something new in the desolate place? You see, after 400 years of silence, John bursts on the scene to declare that God is on the move in the desolate places, not simply to like evacuate us from the chaos of the desolate place, but in some sense to mend the breach of the chaos waters and then rebuild to spite the suffering. It's like when God shows up in the desolate place, he does so in a way that's surprising, is gracious, and yet it is still hurts. If there's something like a word or a need for the hour, this might be it, that God shows up in the desolate place. And I, I, don't, I don't actually know if you are in a desolate place. You might be. I, and I think it's a matter of when, not if, the desolate place will come. No, no let, let me be, be sure. We are really good. We are quite adept at moving out of the desolate place on our own terms. We, we have these little things. These are really good at distraction. And I don't, I don't want to throw shade at this. Clearly, I have it in my pocket. I use it. There's good to be had. And yet we can distract ourselves from the desolation rather than receiving God's presence therein. More on that in a moment. See, I, I don't know how long or if you are in a desolate place, but I think what we would do well to do in this season is to receive John's word about the desolate place. For that, look back to verse 2. Repent, John says, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Change your mind about how God might work in the world. And I know that personally, I know that these are the last words that we want to hear when we are in a place of desolation. We're in the wilderness. You don't necessarily want to hear repent because those words come chock full of baggage. But repentance is about far more than guilt over past sins. Repentance actually has this beautiful nature to it. Repentance refers to one turning away from a past way of life and entering into something new. It's the inauguration of a new way of living. But this is the beauty of, of repentance. Are you ready? It's like a seed that goes into the ground and dies so that something can come forth. Repentance can feel like a type of death, but in the place of death, something new can emerge. Repentance actually makes space for life to come out of desolation. And yet our desolation, it would say something like, no, death is the end. But Jesus in Advent speaks another word if we're willing to receive it. So let's sort of the question in front of us. Like, are we willing to sit in the discomfort of the dim light of desolation and allow God to bring healing in that place? And I'd, if this sounds strange, let me just remind us that from the beginning, God has been comfortable in the strained place of darkness. You open up to page one and you find God hovering over the dark, chaotic waters. 
That is not a place that God is unfamiliar. It's like the Spirit hovers over the water and then God speaks and life and light break forth. You go a little bit further in the story of Genesis and you have this rogue son, Jacob, who has just swindled his brother out of the inheritance. And he is somewhere in a desolate place and at night in his dreams, the heavens open up. This strange moment, God breaks into the desolate place to say something new. Jacob's response to that moment is, God was here and I didn't even know it. In the desolate place, you look forward, you fast forward in the story and what you see is the people of Israel are in the desolation of slavery and yet God comes and delivers them and he stays with them, a pillar of fire and smoke to mark out his presence in the wilderness. This has been God's mode, his MO, his mode of operation in the world is to occupy the wilderness with and for his people. From the beginning, God has been in the business of transforming desolate places and the people who find themselves there. In those days, John called for a renewed trust to repent, for the old to pass away so that the new might have room to come. And as we read in verse 5, there are some who received this call. If, If you hear these words, people went out to him, that's John the baptizer, from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. It's kind of like when you place a rock, you drop a rock into a pond and those concentric circles build out, they ripple out. Jerusalem is the hot spot of where God's presence ought to be. And yet people are coming from the hot spot of God's presence to a new place out in the wilderness. So they're leaving that presumed place of God's presence and they're moving. And it's not just there, it's the region of Judea. And then it's all of the region of the Jordan. So that means there's Jews, all of the types of Jews. It's not just like one type of Jew back then. There's Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes and Zealots. There's Jesus' crew. There's John's There's all types, like all the denominations we have. Yeah, there's, there's that going on. And they're all coming to John. There's something new that's happened in the story in those days. But where do they go? Well, they go to the wilderness. And what do they do? Verse 6, they confess their sins. And they receive this symbol of this new way forward. And just, just, can I have one moment to nerd out on you? I'm just looking for one, thank you, one, there was just, I got one nod of affirmation. Okay, that's all we need. But baptism was taking place in the temple. If you, if you looked at the temple, they have all of these spaces where you can go into the waters as a place of purity and come out to enter into the type of worship that was acceptable to Yahweh. But it's not just those at the temple. The Essenes who look at what's happening in the corruption of the temple and they're like, we need to get out of here. These are like our Amish. They're like, okay, we need to like get out of here. We're not, we're not going to succumb to the cultural forces. So the Essenes, they go out into the wilderness. They too have baptism pools because it's about purity. And now John the baptizer goes out to the Jordan River. Is the Jordan River significant in the story of the people of Israel? Hmm. I wonder if there was a place where the people entered into and they had to trust God to step into a new place where the waters held up. It's like a new move of God is taking place and John is saying it's going to happen in the wilderness. And what you would expect in verse 7 
is, is to hear that there were some who went out, but there were others who stayed back. Instead, John has this surprising progression, or excuse me, Matthew has this surprising progression, and this is what we read in verse 7. I'm going to read a chunk here, so stay with me. But when he, that is John, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, these are like the religious elite, the, the, the most wealthy of denominational leaders, coming to where he was, and where was he again? He was in the wilderness. He's in the desolate place. When he saw the religious leaders going to the desolate place, he said to them, you brood of vipers, not a compliment, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Like you can't pull rank with your religiosity. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So this, this is about as close as you can get to calling someone the spawn of Satan without outright doing it. So if you just want to, like, I don't know, like have a low-key dig on someone on Twitter, you just, you brood of vipers. Maybe don't, because, like, I... Jesus, uh, uh, never mind, just cancel. That's not good pastoralism anyways. Let's go on. Um, this, is, this is a heavy-handed statement to, to say, you brood of vipers, you, you seed of the snake. Now, I want to chase this little theological um, rabbit so hard, but for time, um, I'm not going to. What I want you instead to do is please go to Genesis chapter 3 and see if there is a serpent that shows up. See if there's a seed of a serpent that would go up and maybe be opposed to a seed of a woman and see maybe if John is doing something there. That's for you to do. Instead for us, we're going to say that John just goes there. He goes and he calls these people functionally the spawn of Satan. And he does so, in my opinion, to, to um, critique the temple apparatus. They've come from Jerusalem and says, your religiosity is not actually accomplishing the righteousness of God. But it goes further than an internal critique. It actually goes to say that in, instead, instead, God's judgment is going to start where you think God's righteousness is coming from. God's judgment is going to start with the house of God, with those who claim to carry his name. So for both the crowds and the religious elite, for the congregants and the ministers, for the attendees and the pastors, John's words come as a sobering reminder that you can live for God without the life of God. You can actually have all of the religious trappings. You can have the symbols and habits of faith. You can have inspired worship and heartfelt devotion. You can have all of these things and yet not the one to whom they point. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. They're a sobering reminder that we can live for God without the life of God. John is inviting us to consider where God is coming. See, the baptism of John, it sets out to wash away the trappings of religion. It sets a way to, to wash away, to refresh and renew and prepare people to gaze upon the horizon without those distractions. And what I find so profound about this, and I, I, I don't know how this will map onto your life, is, is John, he embraces his role in the story. John doesn't try to be someone he's not. 
Don, John doesn't try to perform into the religious role ex- expected of people in the day. In fact, in, in the other gospels, there's a moment where these uh, similar leaders will come out to John and they'll ask him, they'll kind of interrogate them, who are you? Are, are, are you the prophet? This is the prophet that was anticipated to come, the one like Moses. Are you that guy? Are, are you that? Are you the one? No, I'm not. Are you Elijah? And what's so odd is that where other authors will, will compare John to Elijah, John says, no, I'm not. Are you the Messiah, the anointed one who will usher in God's new kingdom? No, I am not the one. Instead, as John says in our passage in verse 11, and hear this, he says, he is the one who will baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. That's like a little idiomatic phrase that says, I am like a stage. I am like a, I'm I'm a best boy. If you're thinking of production, I'm one who stands in the back. All I get to do is like tape cords down to the ground. That's me. I can't, I can hardly do that. I'm not even worthy to be in his presence. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John is coming to wash away the trappings of religion, the distraction that they bring, but one is coming to be the presence of God among you and in you and through you. In those days and in this one, John draws us into the wilderness to ask Something like this. What are the distractions entangling your imagination? What are the distractions that are choking out the presence of God? I heard a a, a beautiful story this past week as I was preparing for this. And it was... um, it was a group of people. If you could go and listen to it, it's, it's this uh, pastor who recently authored a book, um, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools, and he has this panel of people with whom he's talking about prayer. And one of, one of the panelists, his name's Pete Gregg, he writes this book, How to Pray, A Simple Guide for Normal People. It's a beautiful work on prayer. And, and Pete kind of inserts himself in this conversation, and he says, sometimes we can place prayer as this kind of... Um, thing that lives in an, like a thin space that you have to, you have to get away, you have to uh, put on your, like, uh, your, your special prayer garments and go into your closet, which is in keeping with the Sermon on the Mount. And yet, um, the normal parts of life are then discounted. And this is relevant to me because we have a four and a two-year-old, but he starts to tell the story of a mom who, um, in, in one sense, hates changing diapers because it often comes at the worst moment. If you have nieces or nephews or you've seen small humans or you, in fact, hear them and and get to appreciate them in a space like this, um, they don't really operate on your timetable. They don't necessarily care what you're doing. In fact, in some of the moments when you are in like a, a, a deep moment of, I don't know, worship or devotion to Jesus, there can be a cry that breaks out. And the story that Pete tells is, is how this, this mom was so annoyed with her newborn child for disrupting her prayer time because then she had to go and change a diaper, what in the UK they call a nappy, which was memorable to me. So there she is wiping off the unspeakables. And this moment came where she was just simply thinking, and I, I, I may be misremembering the story, so just forgive me here, but this is how it's coming to you, is that in this moment, it was like the grace of Jesus that was wiping away the sin. 
And that, the, the tenderness with which she did this, it became a moment of transformation where this thing, the, the gross part of life was actually transformed into a place of worship. And I'm sharing this story to you because what if the places that we've been trying to alleviate our discomfort in are the places that God wants to come and meet us? The places that we like numb ourselves with distraction, maybe in this season it's like you feel an acute loneliness and so you're thinking, well, I, I can just watch that thing or I can reach out to that person. I know this relationship didn't end well last time, but in this, this time it might go differently. We just have to account for this because the wilderness is here. It's not a matter of if, but when. Like, will we be willing to receive the call to the wilderness to see that God is there opening up a new way forward to renewal? What if this Advent season, the renewal that you long for is taking place, but it's just not where you want to go? Now, I'm, I'm not saying, like, turn on the spigot full throttle to the, the pain of the past, but perhaps with the people who love you and support you, you can like name some of those hurts. And maybe it's just as simple. And as we respond to worship, you might just say, Jesus, I am, I am scared to my core, but I, I, I want your healing. Maybe you, you, you share it with someone in this community you trust. Maybe you're so bold as to share it with me and ask to, to carry that in prayer. I don't know, but at some point we have to learn to orient ourselves toward the desolate place because historically and consistently, this is where God brings the healing that we long for. You see, John's words are in front of us today so that we might turn afresh to the one who can go different, like deeper than the religious symbols that we crave to go to our soul to bring that type of healing. John knew his place in the story. It's an unlikely birth to an aging mother, the son of a priest, a bit of an odd fellow living outdoors eating the bugs, but he knew his place. He was a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for Yahweh, make straight paths for him. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me. I'm going to invite you to respond to this. See, I don't, I, I don't want to... Um, I don't want to assume your story. I don't want to assume the place that you're in. I don't, I don't want the church of Jesus to become a place where you're like, okay, um, here's the story of manipulation on repeat. Or I don't even know. Maybe you don't even carry that cynicism. Maybe I'm projecting that on you because I carry some of that in my own heart. But what I long for is that that we could become the type of people who are willing to like unburden ourselves to God and maybe even one another over time. 